what a load of old men looking at bin bags filled with their passports and identification. Right. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that's better. Good. Back to your deep, booming baritone. Um, yeah, this is Kino Kingdom 36. And Rupert, I've got actually got like a little little surprise for you. So I hope you've got your phone with you. Uh, I do. We're going to do a, a Kahoot quiz. <laughs> a full Kahoot quiz on COVID and then 90s pop. Um, <laughs> no, no, there's, there's going to be something a little bit later on. But um, I, I've actually, uh, through speaking to one of our mutual acquaintances, let's call him Billy Bonkon, I... Um, realized that I he reminded me of a few films that I that I'd missed. We were talking, and he reminded me of a few things. So, I've got a few two minutes, but in total, I've got thirteen films. One, one of which I've seen with you. So, we all know yes. what that is. Uh, so, I'm um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna. I've been holding off this treat for you for a week mm. now, and it's been very very tough for me to not like because. Oh, I get excited when things like this happen. So I'm going to send you a video and you're going to have to download it. And then when you play it back, um, right. put your phone in like airplane mode and hold it up to the, the microphone. So obviously the, the listeners can can join in the fun as well. Okay. So before I send you this video, I just want to say that, you know, obviously we've had a lot of big sponsorships. We've had, uh, we've had a lot of, a lot of big names on the show, but last week we were talking specifically about Tony House, and uh, we were talking okay. about um, those awesome anti-piracy adverts. Mm -hmm. So, with this in mind, I'm going to send you a video, <clears throat> and obviously, yeah, download it, and then put your phone in airplane mode before you press play, so it doesn't beep when it goes up the microphone. Wait one second. This must have been this must have been a real challenge to keep under your hat. I have been excited, excited this last week. It's been amazing. I mean, obviously, you don't know what it is yet, but uh, right. So the video has been sent. So this is right. a happy birthday, my my birthday present to you. Right. So that's downloaded. So if I turn it on airplane mode now, it should yeah, still I'd play. Right? Yeah. Turn up your volume max, and then hold up as you watch the video. Hold it up to the microphone as well. And happy <laughs> <Yeah>. birthday. <laughs> This is amazing already, and I haven't even pressed play. Okay, here we go. Long words of paper is printed on, mate. Yeah. Hello, it's Tony House, here the geezer. Hello, folks. Rupert, happy birthday. <laughs> Men are talk a lot. Long words of paper is printed on, mate. Men don't talk. I look forward to your next syllable, mate. If you're right, geezer. Tony Howe's comedy actor, 20 years on from the anti-piracy advert. Oh, yeah. Sure, tracking, mate. Yeah, talking in Scotch, are they? Yeah. All right, Governor. So you obviously worked in the Blockbusters or similar. Rupert, happy birthday. Glad you got the old um, group that you're doing together with your lovely friend who's got it sorted out for you, Britt. That's really kind of you both. Yeah, I take it as a compliment. Very nice, mate. Um, I'm doing panto these days. I've gone from a right geezer to dressing up as panto day. Woo. I have a bright like Manchester United all support new cops. That's showbiz. Anyway, lads, Rupert, have a lovely birthday. Um, Adam Smithhurst, the son of uh, Love Thy Neighbour chap, he, he was the other geezer, in it? 
Yeah, train spotting. Do you remember it, lads? Well, look, the wind's blowing up there. Look, a lot like Bobby Charlton. Take care and thank for you both. Have a lovely birthday, Rupert. And, uh, yeah, keep in touch, lads. I'm in Peterborough doing Beauty and the Beast. If you want to come and see the panto and introduce yourselves, that'll be nice at Christmas of the day. Anyway, lads, what a nice, nice uh, surprise to get from you. <laughs> what a man. What a man. And it is pretty cool to be invited up there. It would be amazing to have a picture with him, but obviously... It, it would we, be hilarious. We're in Cardiff, and Peterborough's a fair old track. But, uh, no, I thought that was awesome of him i thought that was really cool of him to do that was amazing that's the best thing i think i've ever seen with my eyes <sighs> yeah so thank you tony and i've got to obviously say... you can't you can't really appreciate the full wonder of his like bleached beach hair um <laughs> in uh, in in a podcast but yeah that was brilliant he was so up for it so bad awesome guy. i've been chatting to him all week and he, he is a really cool guy um i forgot what tickled me the most about that video is when he says oh so you're tracking mate and i thought god that is such a lost thing now just the thought of like buying a dodgy vhs of something in a market and then saying oh, it's, it's really scrambled and then saying oh, it's your tracking it's such a like a 90s thing you just yeah. it's just i just because i remember fiddling with tracking so much um yeah and the bit where he says oh, yeah i forgot tracking was even a thing but now yeah when wow. he says when he says you worked in a blockbuster, that was obviously I think in the message I said I worked in a video store, so I think he got us mixed up. But no, thank you, Tony. That's amazing. Happy birthday, Rupert. What a man. <sighs> and uh, and yeah, it's it's time for Kino Kingdom thirty six. So I, like I said, I've got thirteen films on the go. I don't know if you want to talk about a specific one or should we launch into Alone in the Dark? Because we've both seen it. I think we should launch into Alone in the Dark. This is going to be freeform jazz because clearly I didn't write any notes for Alone in the Dark, directed by Yui Ball in 2000. What was it? 2005. 2005. Um, yes. We were, but I've got to say before we, because we, we watched this uh, together, which we haven't done for a while online. And we were, as we were sort of, as the credits were rolling, as the wall of text that starts the oh film. What? Wall of, it makes the Star Wars introduction look like a, a receipt for a single pint at a Weatherspoons. Yeah, but genuinely, like I remember when I remember as a kid watching like Star Wars and thinking, "Well, oh, this is a lot of text. There's quite a lot to take in right at the start. A lot of information, but it's nothing compared to this. It it, it goes on. There must be it must be ten paragraphs or more. It's ridiculous. It goes on and on and on, and there's a narrator telling it all, and you don't need to know any of it. It's no. like all this backstory about these like ancient myths and stuff. It's baffling because it's it's such a lot of information, and I found out afterwards on, after the fact on IMDb that it says that that block of massive text was added because people were having trouble following the plot when the plot is so bare bones. And if anything, that just massively overcomplicates it. If it just launched into the film, you think, right, I, I get what's going on. I can, you know, I, it, I at least can follow this as a visual medium. But we were trying to work out what this film was off the back of because the Alone in the Dark video game series was started in like 92. And then mm. the last one, I think, before this was in 2001, Inferno. And that was slated. I mean, all the games have been badly received. And it's just like four years after that, in between a sort of a day of, of games, it's like, well, let's knock out a film. Um, but, yeah, it's... Yeah, so the, the plot, I suppose, is is uh, Christian Slater plays uh, someone called Edward Carnby, who was brought up in an orphanage 
and had some sort of event where he got separated from all the rest of the children who were being sort of taken away by governmental figures in the evening. And mm-hmm. it cuts forward to him in his late 30s, early 40s. And he's now a private eye who specializes in the occult. And he's trying to track down this ancient civilization called the Abkhani. Ab- Abkhani. Um, yeah, Abkhani. And um, yeah, and the film kicks off with us catching up with him as he's trying to track down this artifact. Um, it's a weird Yui Bolf. And we've watched a few of his films. And... I'd like to say straight up that he is not the worst director in the world. No, and this isn't the worst film in the world, but it's not one of his best. <laughs> no, it's no Tunnel Rats, which is better than Dunkirk, obviously. But I, I think what I find is it, this film is like, it, 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 the way it's filmed, it comes across as an episode of, I think it starred Tia Career in the late 90s called Relic Hunters. I'm sure it was called that. It definitely has nothing to do with Tomb Raider. And it's, Christian Slater's voice and Stephen Dorff's voice in this film are problems because they've both got quite reedy, mid-rangey voices. And when they're shouting, they just sound, especially each other, it sounds like two teenagers bickering in a bedroom. Yeah, it really does. And yeah, neither of them are particularly, I mean, Stephen Dorff's pretty short as well. He he doesn't come across as a threatening nemesis at all. Yeah. He's sort of an anti-hero really, isn't he? I don't want to give anything away because obviously the complexity of the writing will reveal all this. But yeah, there are there are points. Um, there are needless sacrifices, massively overcomplicated plot uh, plot points, and also it's all of the blood is CG in this film, and I mean every drop you see is CG. Uh, you, and yeah, like so, the blood pools on the ground are CG. So when That's the crazy. camera sort of moves across, say, an empty room with a pool of blood, you've got this weird, shifting, oddly yeah. shiny, reflective pool, and you think, just pour some fake blood on the floor. It's, <laughs> it just saves money, and it looks better. I want to point out as well that not only is there a massive block of text at the start going into like, the backstory and the mythos behind it, but also there's narration as well. As well. So, mm. so you've got... So, you know, you have these scenes where... These transition scenes where he'll be explaining more backstory to you it's there's so much tell and so little show um it does Um, feature a cameo by um brendan fletcher yui ball's muse as a cab driver in this as well but yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird one to talk about because it's it feels long it's only like an hour and a half but it feels like a long film and i think it's because after all the i mean all the the action at the start and you know the, the constant like you say narration and explanations for such a basic plot that is overcomplicated when it gets yeah. to, to the latter half the it the it does it, it's just turns into a, like a really military so, military sort of film where you've just got a load of people wearing what looks like just like skateboarding like yeah armor, just shooting shooting at either bad cg monsters or just into the darkness um yeah and yeah and there's i mean like i said it's not 20 years old so we can't spoil the plot but there are scenes where people are just shooting like up in the sky when all of the monsters they're shooting at are ground-based and you just think it's so poorly edited in that regard there's one like shootout scene where i don't know what he's going for maybe just this general sense of chaos but there it will be like there's no there's no connection between one shot and the next they'll be shooting up at the sky and then it'll like flash up with an alien coming in from the right and then they'll be shooting to the left 
and then there'll be an alien coming from above and it's like the it doesn't make any sense the editing just doesn't make any sense from second to second it's <laughs> it's so weirdly done and i get i don't know if it's a stylistic choice but it doesn't work at all i also um struggled with i could never work out like if it's one of those films where christian slater's house seems to be like a, a warehouse sort of thing that he has like a really dusty bed and everything's covered in dust for some reason he's got a stupid jacket on as well um and oh remind me to talk about nicholas cage's jacket and gone in 60 seconds as well i forgot to mention it last time and it's, it's key for me um yeah so he's like okay he's at home now he's got like a laptop and he's got this like archaeological bits and pieces and he's got his gun and stuff but then when a shootout happens there's suddenly in this building going up and down this sort of utility like lift and there's a car parked inside the building and people are getting out of it and you think where are mm. you and then there's gunshots people smashing through skylights and these crates of like weapons everywhere and and you're mm. like at the end of this firefight no it's in his house it's in this yeah. warehouse that's it, it, it's so bizarre it's like they use one set for everything <laughs> it, it's odd it's bizarre it would cost so much to heat as well so, <laughs> yeah. yeah people jumping out of a car with machine guns in the middle of someone's house you think how would you get there how <laughs> what uh, it's i, uh, I yeah. can't yeah i can't really fathom what it was the idea was behind this film because no one's ever alone in the dark in the film for a start and also and it it really does degenerate into just a military shooter it's almost like he just watched resident evil or something and thought oh that's cool let's change the script completely and just turn it into that mm. just yeah uh yeah it's not good no not the worst film i've ever seen but not good no it's it's just i think it's crucially there's a bit whilst it's a, some a lot of it is baffling and some of it is downright bad there's that bit there's a 15 20 minute gap where it gets a bit military and that's boring that's really boring and that's the, the worst the worst crime and we we figured that the reason that it's regarded as one of the worst films of all time is because there's a bit of money behind it I mean, it's 20 million, which isn't a lot of money, but you can do, you can make 20 million go further than this. And you can certainly write a decent script. So it is a bit inexcusable, really. Yeah, like I other did... films, we give, we give UE a, a bit of a pass with a lot of his other films because clearly they're like self funded and stuff. So it's like, okay, you, you're working within limitations here, but that really was his chance to show that he could do something on a, moderate budget and he did not achieve that yeah and tara reed is a tough sell as an, a scientist that specializes in ancient mayan civilizations uh, yeah, yeah. W there's a sequel which the cover of which appears to be the same cover as this but with christian slater digitally removed um <laughs> and, and, uh, and we are going to watch it because it's directed <laughs> by two people who wrote this film so just intrigued to see what direction it goes in really because this film has like the whole the final reel of this what the events that take place are baffling and the thing the thing that has held back people from going into this into this certain area is ridiculous and could just be kicked open it doesn't need an artifact um it's gateway yeah but it's just like french tours isn't it? <laughs> it's like a, a chinese changing screen there's a fold <laughs> away um so yeah it and and then there's this stupid ending and it's just lazy everything about it the best part of it is the fact that they've got nina cherry seven seconds during a brief love scene with christian slater mm. and tara reed that's the best part of the film that's where the money went that's where the budget went it's like, should we have some decent special effects? Should we have some, like, fake blood? 
We've got fake blood or seven seconds. <laughs> Quick, make a choice. <laughs> the quickest choice. Uvi is ever. the blood. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Alone in the Dark, not a good film, but not the worst film ever made. By a long shot. That goes to um, 1995's okay. Granny. <laughs> um, or Interstellar Civil War by Albert Pune. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't get to mention that. Okay, do you want to do you want to crack on? We got thirteen films, so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go into to make you move. One that our friend uh, Keith Erect um, reminded me of <laughs> that is the Getaway, a film from nineteen ninety four, starring Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger, and James Woods. Unfortunately, um, it's actually the first time I've seen James Woods in a film since just discovered how toxic he is as a person and it, it, i just look at, i was looking at him and and obviously he's just an actor in a film but i just thought james you're not a very nice man and i couldn't stop thinking that every time he came on screen and it, it's kind of ruined it a bit like you know i've been wanting to watch cop again but i yeah. know i just every scene he'd come into shot possibly smoke and i think oh you're not a very nice person james i don't know if you realize is that. he playing a nice person in this no has james Woods yeah. ever played a nice person i'm not sure he has and i think that's that helps in a way because I think when I know that someone's a bit of a dick in real life, if they're playing like a reprehensible person, then it helps because um, they're not trying to elicit my sympathy. Like I'm thinking like vampires and, and stuff like that, where he is just a disgusting animal and like, okay, well, I can believe that, you know, I can, I can roll with that. Um, so this is a film I watched probably like six weeks plus ago, um, but it, okay. I just there's only one aspect of it I really wanted to get involved with. So the the the, the plot is um, Alec Baldwin, Kim Basinger, and Michael Madsen are they just rob banks basically? This and uh, they sort of want to get out of it, and Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger want to do like one final big score and bugger off. And Michael Madsen's obviously in it for the thrill, and he's trying to stop Alec Baldwin, you know, settling down. He's like, no, keep, keep doing it. It's, it's brilliant. So what happens is there's a botched robbery at the start of the film where Alec Baldwin gets caught because Michael Madsen is in a biplane and flies off when the police turn up. And Alec Baldwin goes to prison. And Kim Basinger has to go to James Woods, to, who is a sort of a part, I guess he's part of the mob, or some, high, mm -hmm. some dude high up in the government. And she effectively offers herself... Uh, so that she can get Alec, so that he can get Alec Baldwin out of prison. But he also wants Alec Baldwin to do a job for him as payment as well. So the the film is almost like a road movie, really, because what what happens is they the 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 uh, they do this robbery, it goes well, and then Michael Madsen goes to double cross Alec Baldwin, but Alec Baldwin shoots first, so he falls into a ditch with his ponytail mm. that is <laughs> copper in color, and. And then they, they go off, they shoot James Woods because um, obviously what he's been doing to Kim Basinger. And then it's sort of a road movie about Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger um, chafing with each other because he doesn't like the fact that she slept multiple times with James Woods, even though she did it out of love for Alec Baldwin. It's the only way to get him out of this Mexican prison. Um, mm. There's a really oddly tender scene. There's a few sex scenes in this, but there's a scene where they're in a motel after everything's kicked off and they're stripping down and Alec Baldwin is kind of like reticent, almost like reticent to start the lovemaking. And Kim Basinger says, because oh, it's obviously been like a couple of years since they've been together and, and she says, it's okay, I'm, I'm nervous too. And then they kiss and it fades. And I thought that's an oddly tender scene to show that, you know, that, that side of their relationship, that tenderness is mm. 
not present in the subplot which takes over the majority of the film which is they're doing their thing james wood's men because he's dead after them uh obviously david morse heads them up and they are trying to um they're trying to get to mexico drive in and they're being chased 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 michael madsen's been shot but he's wearing a bulletproof vest so he's he's alive and he goes after them and the film is oddly obsessed with this so you've got this sort of gentle erotic sort of thriller drama going on with Alec and Kim. But then whenever the film cuts back to Michael Madsen sort of after them and trying to track out where they are and get his money back, he, to get his wounds sorted, he goes to a vet played by this sort of buffoonish sort of bottle, thick bottle glass wearing skullet curly haired guy and his wife played by Jennifer Tilly. And it's, he effectively just rapes and, just psychologically tortures Jennifer Tilly, who's almost got doing a mm. sort of like real childlike mentality thing uh, in front of the husband. And the film is, is it's almost like a slapstick comedy. It's really bizarre how these horror, he's sort of really treating her badly, but she's oddly falling in love with him because he's a strong alpha male, supposedly. And her husband's obviously just quite meek. And then there's just, it ends, it culminates in a scene where, he is just having this like really cartoonish, like thrusting loud sex with with Jennifer Tilly whilst they force her husband who's like tied up to watch. And then when they wake up in the morning, he's hung himself in the toilet and Michael Madsen's like pushes him out the way and just has a pee. And mm. and you think this is like this is really, really not in tone with the rest of the film, which is kind of a sleek, sexy thriller. Um yeah. And it's yeah, and then that that sort of weird tone shifts into the 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 the, the final shootout where it's like oddly gory and blood splattered, and right. then after it all settles down, there's a really bizarre. The film kind of ended really casually, like it just obviously it's older than twenty years, so I can say that it the the, the final sort of well, I didn't even know it was the final shootout. It kind of happens. And then they kind of get in a truck with this old bloke called Slim and they have this really rambling chat just saying they're a couple and they just want to, you know, start a new life. And he's just like talking about his business and stuff. And then he just drops them off and the film ends. And I thought, why was that bizarrely gentle extended chat with an old man at the end of this film? (laughs) (laughs) It was really odd. Um, Yeah, but it was nice enough. But it just, if anything, it just highlights the tonal shifts with that subplot with Michael Madsen. Um, so it's a weird one. It, it sounds Philip, totally unbalanced. Yes, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it as well, briefly, which is always always good to see. Um, I don't remember much about the Sam Peckinpah film. I remember being quite unpleasant, like in terms oh. of its sexual politics and stuff. Uh, it was the original story was written by Jim Thompson, I think. I don't know whether he did the screenplay. He's the guy who did Killer Inside Me. Um. Very hard-boiled author. He worked with Stanley Kubrick, actually. He did the. He wrote the Killing, and Paths okay. of Glory. I, I just realised that, um, and this is all I need to say, really, is that uh, Roger Donaldson, who obviously uh, yes. directed the Bounty Species, Dante's Peak, um, directed a film called Seeking Justice with mm-hmm. Guy Guy Pearce, Nicholas Cage, and January Jones in that I watched about a month ago, and I, I forgot about it to the point that I haven't even put it in like a list and not got to it, if you know what I mean. So I, I'm, I'm just going to skip that one over, I think. <laughs> Roger Donaldson is a, a hack. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, he just is. I think his last film, I get the feeling his last film was The Guardian with Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher. Like the lifeguard thing. Yeah. The lifeguard thing, yeah. It was just so generic. 
I think Roger Donaldson might have directed 13 Days with Kevin Costner as well. That was quite good. Yeah, they just saw that pop up then. Yeah. There's only one. That was, that was pretty good because that wasn't. That was a bit different. It was a men talking in rooms and smoking film. So good. There's only one Sweet. film based on the Coast Guard that I want to watch, and that is Striking Distance from 1991. <laughs> I still haven't seen, unbelievably. And also, bizarrely, watching... I don't know why I was watching an interview with Bruce Willis the other day, but um, it's also Striking Distance on Laserdisc is the only film of his that he owns. Wow. So it must be good. I mean, in a, what, a 40-year career, he's settled on Striking I, Distance on I remember Laserdisc. watching it in the 90s and <laughs> thinking it wasn't very good. Because I was expecting it to be like Die Hard on a river, <laughs> but it, I just it, I remember finding it dull. If so it pro- if it was Die Hard on a boat in a river, then the final shot of Hans Gruber falling would be far less impactful. It yeah. would just be him like tripping on what, and then just falling into some water like about three feet away. <laughs> and then Bonavadelia um, saying to Bruce Willis, he's, "He's probably not dead. I think you should just shoot him." So he's very wet. Is the getaway on Amazon Prime? Is it on Amazon? Well, we know it's on Amazon Prime. It is recommended. It is recommended because Alec Baldwin is a handsome man, convincing is an attractive woman, and they do have because they were married at the time. They do have chemistry, and there is some like nice moments in it. And okay. but yeah, it just that sub. It's worth it for the subplot. It's so jarring. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, and that's on Prime. All right, maybe yeah. I will watch that then. You should definitely. Um, Okay, well, I'll talk about something that's on Prime as well then. Uh, a film called Only the Brave, uh, which was made in 2017. And it's based on the true story and the tragedy of the Granite Mountain Hotshots. They're a group of municipal firefighters dealing with bushfires in California. Um, it's directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Uh, who made Tron Legacy and Oblivion before this. Um, and he's now going to do the next Top Gun film. Um, and I, I like Kaczynski. I think he's got a really good cinematic eye. He's a bit like Spielberg insofar as he's got this knack of knowing which moments are kind of the dramatic keystones. And he knows how to apply style in those moments to maximize the dramatic effect it just they just fit well directed basically um style in the service of substance i like to say um josh brolin plays the supervisor of this group of hot shots he's quite an alpha male his wife is jennifer connelly and she's a, a horse trainer and it's very much like he's the alpha male and she's you first see her like healing a horse with a hand so it's very mythic in its depiction of gender. Um, Jeff Bridges is in there. Good. Just jutting out his chin. He's the fire chief of the county. Um, and he's the one trying to get Josh Brolin's team to be certified as hot shots. So really it's about like these firefighters trying to get their kind of um, make the grade basically. Um, Mile, the kind of focus is really on Miles Teller, his character. He's this crack addicted loser who just got a girl pregnant. And, He's trying to get his life in order, so he joins this firefighting crew. Uh, it's very much about a film about family, and it's, it focuses a lot on Josh Brolin and Miles Teller's uh, different lives, and in their own ways, obviously generation a generation apart, but they're both trying to struggle to balance their job with their family life, 
and and it's an interesting psychological conflict between them because they're actually got more in common than they realize it's got some good lines in it the film there's i like there's one line where that someone says ask someone you've got to you've got to ask yourself what can i live with and what can i die without which is quite a cool line and it's saying that the sacrifice isn't just about the risk on the front line, but what these heroes sacrifice in their everyday lives sort of thing. Um, I mean, it's it's hardly Cormac McCarthy, but there is a certain kind of mythic quality to the script. And the script has this good balance of convincing technical language whilst also giving us sufficient information to understand what's going on. So there's loads of jargon flying around, but we basically understand what they're saying um and i like movies like that where you're convinced by the technical language not quite sure what it all means but you get the gist and i think that's good writing wall street was the gold standard for that because i have no idea what anyone's talking about in that movie but i understood what was happening somehow so it's all very bro culture and very kind of competitive males but i suspect that's quite accurate to be fair in the circumstances there aren't that many fire scenes and it's more to do with the unit and the personal relationships. Although I will say that the final sequence is pretty amazing. Uh, the final fire, so to speak. And there's this really well calibrated growing sense of this apocalyptic doom and growing panic. And I think it's really well done. Uh, yeah, there's, and there's some nice film, uh, nice moments where Miles Teller is kind of like, becoming a responsible father and stuff like the scene where he has his daughter overnight for the first time is very funny possibly because i've just become a father it seemed funnier and truer but it just his complete it just the way he's so overwhelmed by this situation even though he's like a tough and hard uh like firefighter is quite funny it is a bit of a mystery why this film flopped to be honest because it did <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm looking at that now. As you were chatting, then it was just really, yeah. really well received and celebrated critically, yep. and then complete flop. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing is, it's got the ingredients to be a success because it's like a true story. It's got an ensemble cast. It's an interesting subject matter, and these are sort of everyday blue collar heroes. Apparently, it was originally called Granite Mountain, which would have been a cool title, but for some reason, they renamed it to Only the Brave, which was just entirely generic, really. And I feel like it is a bit of a nail, another nail in the coffin of the mid-budget movie on the big screen. I mean, it only costs like thirty-eight million, but I mean, it looks incredible. My personal theory about why it didn't do well is because it's a straight-up disaster film, and I'm not sure that they are really, um, really uh, the kind of popular type of drama of the day really it's not really the zeitgeist it, the kind of the tragic drama du jour is usually these days focused on social injustice uh mm. so you know like someone being locked up for the wrong reason and stuff like you know and not someone chucking a fag into a bush when it's dry <laughs> exactly. and this is to do with like an act of god basically and it's like i wonder if it had been made say in the aftermath of 9-11 say I'm not sure when all these events actually happened, so maybe it couldn't have been. But if it had been made in the aftermath of 9-11, it could have stood a chance because then, of course, sympathy for firefighters was at its peak. So I don't know. It, it, I feel like it could be remade as a TV miniseries because there's so many characters. 
Um, and there's, you know, the wives barely feature in this movie. But and so much happened afterwards, apparently, especially with regards to like insurance payouts being withheld and stuff. I think it could be really interesting to have a mini series about it. But anyway, it's a good film and highly recommended. So the mini series afterwards would start off with a block of text saying, "This is a <laughs> film about the uh, was it Arizona firefighters, <laughs> only the brave," and then explains the plot, you know, how all the excitement yeah. and the grand fire, and then the it, last five hundred years of history in the county, and then it's and the next ten hours are set in an insurance office. <laughs> <laughs> someone just like ah oh, yeah I, I, we're not gonna pay I, I, it's a bad lane i'm afraid for 10 hours sorry michael jeter um well that man should still be alive no i that it does sound like a film i will watch um I, it's I, worth watch yeah do they talk about fire as being like a living breathing animal no thankfully Uh, the closest it get is that Josh Brolin is just very experienced so he has a pretty good sense of where a fire is going to go just in terms of checking the weather and stuff but it seems it seems plausible the stuff he's saying (laughs) again not sure I really fully understand everything that's going on but it's yeah there's never there's no bit about it being a living thing or there's no mystical bits where they're like following like a trail of fire as if it's a creature or something. I'm looking at you, Backdraft. Hunting it down. Do you fancy Josh Brolin? Yes, I fancy yeah. most of the men in this film. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation, I think I forwarded you a screenshot on the weekend about people, oh, oh, man, older men that I believe, it's always older men as well, that I believe could successfully seduce me at a bar, into a kiss. You know, like, I, I don't know if we've talked about this before on the podcast, but mm-hmm. we'd well, be having a drink with them at a bar and they would they would sort of um, like like laugh sort of, <laughs> and then as they lean in, you just, you don't kiss back, but you just sort of like let it happen and just to see how you feel. Um, so, yeah, I think Josh Brolin is firmly in that camp, especially because of his voice. He's, he's obviously like quite tall, so he would lean in, and i think, oh, I'm powerless, Mr. Brolin. It was, a, yeah, it was quite a t- There was a lot of tension for me, because obviously it's like Josh Brolin and Jennifer Connelly. It's like, who do I want more? I'm not sure. <laughs> James Badgertail, obviously. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, James, brilliant. Taylor Kitsch. Taylor <laughs> Kitsch put in a decent performance. There you go. He's got everything. Um, I was going to talk about uh, another film, but I'm going to talk about Mark for Death, Steven Seagal, because um, because you, when you mentioned um, you mentioned something about like th- that script almost being mythic, and it reminded me in this film because there's just one moment when they in this there's one moment in this 1990 action film starring Steven Seagal about this like um, DA agent who is like taken down taking down this uh, Haitian drug lord where they just they just fully reveal like the existence of magic and then it's never referenced again oh. and I thought what is that going to play a part no no they just it's they not just really re- par for the course for that type of movie no. at that time revealing like the, the, the sort of realism of magic and then just pushing it to one side um, I swore after I watched it's another film with three three what was it three words it was out for justice which is supposedly I don't know if you remember about 10-15 episodes ago I went online and the fan said out for justice is like his best film and I watched it and it wasn't very good and I thought right, that's me done with Steven Seagal for a bit and then I saw Mark for Death and I assumed it was out for justice and I clicked on it and thought oh, I'll give it a go and it's a better film, quite frankly, but it's still not very good. So 
And I think the reason it's I enjoyed it more is just because of the cast. You've got like Basil Wallace, who plays Screwface, the main uh, the main antagonist and head mm. of these uh, I think the uh, Jamaican drug lords. He is so sexy in this film. He's got these amazing dreads, the green contact lenses, completely ripped, and he's just like really sexy. Admittedly, he he's like a a drug dealing serial killer, but you know, I, again, if he leaned in for a kiss at a bar for an out of food boomins, and let him—he's got quite mesmerizing eyes, isn't he? Yeah, and imagine what, in this, he's got green contact lenses in as well. Um, mm. Danny Trejo isn't it as well? Good. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so the film is that he, uh, Steven Seagal plays someone called John Hatcher. Obviously, he's called John something. And he is completely disillusioned with his time in the in the police force. And he retires just to spend some time with his family in a place called Lincoln Heights, uh, which is a suburb of Chicago. And he reconnects with his family and reconnects with his old friend who now coaches the high school, I think it's like football team uh played by keith david another man who yeah. could lean in and successfully plant one on me um <laughs> for less than a price of a pint um and yeah and so it's of course you'd think it's keith david steven seagal and they get basically work together to take down this um the these drug lords there's a lot of things wrong with this film one of the biggest problem is steven seagal's clothes it is unbelievable what this man is wearing in this film. There are some scenes where he just looks like he's got, walked out of bed and he's taken his bins out and he hasn't got a job. Uh, and no, no, um, he it's every time he's wearing something, it's awful. Whether it be baggy trousers or like a, a, all of his jackets are far too baggy. It's like they're weighted down around the belly with just the bottom zip just caught, just half done up. He's well, wearing- just look at the um, look at the uh, poster for mark for death and oh. it's it's steven seagal with a in silhouette and he's pointing a gun sideways sort of thing and you could see the bagginess of his jacket <laughs> hanging down yeah the thing is this is like when bingo he was, this is when he was like in 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 prime steven seagal shape it's watching it there's a bit the, the first scene where he meets keith david on the football team is unbelievable because he he looks up he walks up and sort of smirks and then keith david looks at him and pulls a face like oh hell it's you again back back in town what he, what he should have looked up and just said, Jesus Christ, what are you wearing? That looks flammable. It looks like a grey, uh, like silvered mattress topper. <laughs> it's like with this Pringle pattern. It's awful, right? And it doesn't stop. Anyway, it's, um yeah, it, it, it's a surprisingly gutsy film in terms of gore and action. Like the, 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 the combat in it, the hand-to-hand combat is weirdly boring. Um, it's just there's lots of fight scenes where Steven Seagal is, uh, you know, it, it's like life or death, and it, yeah. his family are involved, and his closest friends, and he's still being surrounded by four or five people, and then just like f- like flipping them over, and then they just get back up for ages mm-hmm. and you think just kill them just just kill them and move on you're obviously capable of it and also one of the other things i noticed is daniel harris plays his niece and she gets shot in the head in a drive-by and the last we see of her is and this is what motivates him to go on this spree to like you know to, to cut these guys down um is she gets shot and it's like life or death his whole family blame him if he hadn't come back she wouldn't have been caught up in this you know this crossfire She's he is she is his reason for living. He is she is what drives him. He's got no family of his own. We never see her again. It's, never never know if she's dead or what happened. She could have she could have died the second he walked out of the hospital. I swear to God, walked out of the hospital to buy another two mattress toppers, <laughs> staple <laughs> together and wear his trousers. Um, the there's a scene in it where 
he the music is amazing it's just like lots of just really loud snare good there's a scene in it where he goes to a bar and he he says i'm going to get some information there's a woman who knows Screwface, basil wallace's character the main bad mm. guy she she's uh, she used to be his girl so he she can tell us how to get to him and she says she, for a start they walk into this bar steven seagal just walks into the middle of the dance floor wearing his awful clothes and just stands mm. there and she just walks up to him because she's seduced by him wow. and and doesn't try to just set him on fire to see how quickly he'll go up <laughs> And she says to him, right, like the only line of dialogue she really has is, you can't kill Screwface. He has got two heads and four eyes, right? And then she walks mm. out. So basically, I, sa- I said out loud to myself, oh, he's got a brother then. Um, and no, Steven Seagal, this is, a, this is a surprise to him, even though it could mean nothing else. Um, yeah, like what, what else could you think that meant? Because she's not literally true, so she's literally telling the most important secret bit of information, and he just she says it, and of course Stephen Seagal can't actually just sort of stands there looking at her, waiting for someone to say cut, and then we does, and then at the end his brother pops out, and and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's what she meant. Um, Did he think it, four eyes meant just he wears glasses? Yeah, but what two heads just means he could like move his neck really fast, so like through a blur effect, he can like, oh, I got two heads, I got two heads, even though he's like, um. Yeah, it's it's not it's not very good. It's not a good film at all. Uh, it, although sadly, it's probably one of his best, apart from Under Siege. It's probably like mid tier one, mid tier Steven Seagal. It's worth watching for his clothes. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Executive Decision is probably my favorite film with him in it, but he can't really call it a Steven Seagal film, can you? Yeah, it's, um... it's like one scene, and then he's <laughs> Granary Bread. Yeah. yeah so it's is not... there anything else you want to quickly go through before we move on because i know you've got a few movies um I that can... was on prime i take it um yes yes it was it was on there only um, the brave is on prime as well um i will really 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 quickly talk about oh just because i watched it today tropic thunder i yeah. this is obviously 2008 and i i watched this film when it came out and I remember being underwhelmed by it. But I haven't seen it in, what, 12, 13 years. So I thought, I'll, I'll check it on again. This is on um, Prime as well. And it's f- funny. But it's it's not it's not funny enough. Um, I don't know if it's because there's too many people. I mean, I love looking at Nick Nolte any chance I get. But mm. it, it it's like everyone has their moment. And I get the impression that, each, you know, we talk about these films where the cast are having more fun than the viewers. Mm. I personally think it's on the right side of that. Like I, it's and it, now looking back, now that Matthew McConaughey is at his sort of, you know, is is, is a reconnaissance back in an industry, and um, Jack Black is is where he is now, and you know Ben Stiller's moved moved further and further into directing sort of thing. It's good to see these people all together. Um, yes, because it wouldn't but, happen. Yeah, yeah. But I I was watching it and I was very aware of the fact that I was sort of sort of enjoying it but not laughing at it. Um, mm. And well, it, it never quite peaks beyond that fake trailer with robert no, downey jr and toby mcguire yeah where they're like touching each other's rosaries and quivering in anticipation yeah if the film was that if it was them quivering and like eyes slowly filling it with water as they as they stared into each other over like an open fire i'd be like that's fine but no you got to bring in jack black haven't you so I, I remember the simple jack bit being quite funny is it simple jack 
Uh, yeah, where what were they making? They make him constantly go through the performance, and he gets lost in it. Um, this <laughs> you love the fact that you're laughing at a half remembered memory. Yeah. You laugh more then than I did at the film. <laughs> you laugh more at half remembering something that may or may not have been correct than I did. I know, but I do that a lot with comedies where I didn't particularly enjoy it first time around, and then I remember scenes from it being funnier than they actually were. Yeah. Uh, like there's a scene in there's a film called Central Intelligence. I'm not sure if you've seen this with The Rock and Kevin Hart. Yes. And it's completely underwhelming on most levels. But there's one scene where where Kevin Hart picks up the phone to someone and it's like someone who's like gonna threaten him with death sort of thing, and he's so nervous that he just starts panicking and for some reason he just like puts on an English accent for no reason whatsoever. And <laughs> That was funny. And like he puts it on for like literally one line and then just like moves on because it's like, what am I doing? And I remember that being hilariously funny. And that's the only part of the film I laughed at. And then I watched it again just for that scene. And it wasn't as funny as I remember it being. So it's almost like sometimes you can conjure something funnier in your mind than actually happened. So I think that's probably what I'm doing with Tropic Thunder as well. Yeah, I mean, the most amusing parts of that, I'd say, this film are, I forget the actor's name, Jay, Jay Baruchel, or Baruchel, yes. who, um, he of Little Chin, who, um, he's obviously like sort of the, um, the, the intelligent, uh, guy of the group who's the most, the least experienced actor. And his, some of his looks when some of the other guys are talking and he just sort of looks away or, or frowns and looks at the floor, they're, they're funny, but it's not enough to carry a film yeah. of this budget with this, like, level of cast. Um, Jake Baruchel has a very distinctive voice and his voice is all you hear in How to Train Your Dragon because he's that guy he's that mm-hmm. kid he's, so, he's got this weird kind of bunged up nose type voice isn't he it's, uh, it's on its way to eventually being a Harold Ramis <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I've talked for a while um, I'll, I'll let you go on to your next one okay well, I'll talk about Nomadland, which is on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this was the 2021 Best Picture winner at the Oscars. Uh, not sure I agree with that, but it was pretty slim pickings last year, wasn't it, really, in terms of films? So Frances McDormand plays a middle-aged woman who lives out of her RV in Nevada after her employer is shut down she takes work where she can literally one of her jobs involves stacking different colored rocks um how can that possibly be a job (laughs) um (laughs) some some guy laughing and masturbating behind a chinese screen used to keep away (laughs) an evil portal (laughs) in an movie ball film well they haven't got much to do back out out in nevada have they haven't got much to sell i suppose um yeah, so, um, I mean, there's probably not that many gardening stores, I wouldn't have thought. But um, anyway, so she, yeah, she, she takes taking work where she can, and she interacts with other nomadic people, because um, that's what this film is about, is about nomadic people. And most of these so-called houseless, not homeless, but houseless folks okay. uh, who all live out of trucks, basically, they mostly have like a tragic backstory, which has led them to life on the road. She joins a travelling tribe, who nicknamed themselves the rubber tramps. And that's where she meets David Strathairn. Good. 
um, looking very bedraggled. Um, and there are a bunch of real life nomads amongst the cast also, apparently. Uh, we see a lot of pretty miserable stuff. We see someone taking a shit. We, someone is dying from cancer. It's freezing at night. <laughs> Francis, uh, Francis McDormand's husband is, is dead. Um, so yeah, it's quite, it's quite a lot of misery. She's highly repressive as a person. So she's mostly observing the misery around her with this kind of vaguely perplexed blankness on her face. There is an awful lot of empty drifting between some very sparse dialogue scenes. Um, there are some well-observed details as well, but I, I kept wondering, might this have been more informative as a documentary? I wonder. Uh, I like. I get the appeal of what she's doing and these people are doing. Like adventure is cool, and meeting new people is cool. But I feel like these things could be done without shitting in a bucket in the back of a transit van, frankly. So I'm not sure. There's this really maudlin rolling piano and cello music, which I hated. I, I, it, it, like, it's so cheesy and sentimental. I half expected the camera to pan across and that you'd see the pianist right there, like in the Truman Show, you know? Bloody hell. Like, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's that bad. So it has this really like lacrimose music and this self-pitting tone. And yet it's depicting uh, uh, people who are apparently perfectly contented with their chosen existence on the road. So it's caught between these two impulses of sympathy and empathy. And I don't feel that the sympathy is fully deserved. And the uh, and empathy isn't really achieved because the, the script is so sparse. You know, I didn't really feel like I understood them any better after watching this. Um, and But I also didn't think it was really trying to gain any sympathy for them because obviously they've chosen to do this chosen to live this life it's quite telling that the most affecting scene in the film is where Frances McDormand she returns to her sister's house to kind of rather sheepishly borrow money and they actually have a full conversation and argument with each other and I felt that that was kind of missing from the rest of the film um, which is mostly pregnant silences the film is generally better towards the back third, which is when Frances McDormand's character comes into contact with David Strathen's wider family. And we begin to understand like the that it's uh, the message behind the film is really a, a sense of belonging that's important, whether that comes from family or a kind of uh, group of uh, just, you know, like minded people. And there's this final subtitle at the end where it says, it just says dedicated to the ones who had to depart. And I thought, did they though? Did they actually have to depart or from society and kind of lead this lonely life of hardship on the road full of fractured relationships and accumulating regrets? Did they have to do that or did they choose to, in fact? So I suppose the argument is that they... It's the Christmas candles effect, isn't it? Yeah, it's this part, I, I don't really understand it. And I, I feel like the film hasn't really helped me to empathize or understand the motivations either practically or psychologically. So it, for me, it failed to, well, achieve anything really for me. Nicely made, but, 
and decent performances, but well, obviously you're going to get decent performances with mm. Francis McDormand and um, David Strasser. But yeah, it didn't really didn't connect with me at all. This this really doesn't sound like a film I will watch, so I don't think I'll ever <laughs> have an opinion on it at all. Like I think, yeah, the Into the Wild thing is is quite a good. I mean, obviously that's slightly different because he was very much someone who just wanted to do it all on his own, which is, so he was especially stupid. But I think Into the Wild does a better job of clarifying what the impulse is all about to to exit society and live a life outside of it, actually. Even though I kind of like the people in this film more, um, I think Into the Wild is a better film about similar subject matter. Okay. I, I I can look at my list. I don't think I can find any sort of follow up to that. Really. <laughs> That's I've... on Disney Plus. If you have, um, I'll quickly. Is it? Oh, all oh, right, okay. Um, yeah. so this is. I'm going to talk about Eagle Eye, which is another film I've seen before and realised about 20 minutes in. Um, so this <laughs> is a 2008 thriller starring. Uh, directed by DJ Caruso, who pops up a lot in our chats, uh, starring Shia LaBeouf and Michelle Monaghan. Um, Shia LaBeouf is just uh, just works in like a like a printing sort of company, a printing firm, and he has a brother who works in the government. He goes home one day to find that his, his like sort of small apartment is filled with military hardware, and he's got nearly a million dollars in the bank. And he gets a phone call from a voice played by Julianne Moore, who tells him you know you have to do what i say you'll die effectively and proves that she can she's fully aware of everything that's going on and he's being framed but he doesn't know why so he goes on the run and, and admittedly rupert he goes on the run kind of rightfully so because you, you think there's no way i can't really explain this <laughs> um and michelle morgan is in a similar situation she's someone who works uh in the in the military in some aspect and gets his son's threatened by this same female caller played by Julianne Moore, and she is given a series of instructions to follow over the phone. Mm-hmm. And Billy Bob Thornton plays someone called Tom Morgan, not the singer and guitarist from the band Smudge from Australia in the early 90s, a different Tom Morgan, who uh, is, is trying, to, trying to track them down, and he is the one that sort of reels, feels that there may be something more going on. Uh, and the film is is it's 2008, so it's, it's some great use of technology in there that you think, oof, that's a that's cast borderline, isn't it, from that time? Um, where Charlie Booth is on the run with Michelle Monaghan, and it becomes clear that there's a huge conspiracy going on, and this voice on the phone isn't what it, well, it doesn't even say what it is, but it, it's quite clear within the first 20, 25 minutes. And it's just a really high-paced sort of techno thriller, uh, fast-paced mm. techno thriller. This is a film you have to switch your brain off to enjoy because mm. when it started, I was so busy thinking, have I seen this before? That I was kind of really paying attention to the plot. And, and I was thinking, I'm sure I've seen this. And in doing so, I sort of almost ru- not ruined it for myself, but I thought, no, 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 I, I don't need to be thinking about this. Just watch what's happening on screen, Brit. It's just explosions, yeah. super fast editing. The music is by Brian Tyler, so it's irritating. And <laughs> it's just it's just event after event uh, going on and and eventually it it just rolls up to this ridiculous sequence sequence of honestly the th- so many pieces would have to fall into place for what is supposed to happen to happen it's preposterous um mm. 
and yeah, it's it's okay. It's like I said, it's just a two minute from me. It's just like a ninety. It felt like ninety minutes. It is. Oh, it's two hours. Well, that's a good sign. Well, that's a good it's sign. A, yeah, it's a, it's a two hour thriller then. Um, and it's pretty fast paced, pretty ridiculous, and pretty switch your brain off, have fun, really. And it kind of reminded like me that it, it remind yeah, it's a perfect it's a perfect like um kiddie movie if you know what I mean. You know, while they're pottering around, you can just look over the heads and think, ah, oh, yeah, something's blown out. We're good. Um. <laughs> Anthony Mackie's in this film. Pretty sure Good. Anthony Mackie has been in every film I've seen in the last six months. He's literally in one of the films I've seen tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous, but it's kind of fun. And and I think what it does work for it is that there's no love sort of subplot. They just they're just together right. getting things done. One's a dude, one's oh, a that's dad. refreshing. Yeah, and even at the end in the denouement, it doesn't fall into that trap. Um, so yeah, it's it's just a pretty solid silly it feels like a 90s film if you know what i mean right that kind of 90s yeah it does yeah. yeah well just the phrase techno thriller just instantly makes me think of 90s which makes me think of enemy of the state really <sighs> which i've also seen this week and we'll be talking about in fact i can move on to that now if you'd like <laughs> um, i just want to just want to mention again that i've still yet to see a bad shia LaBeouf film yeah with, I, i'm with him given his unfair reputation because, you know, the one, what have I seen? I've seen Lawless. I've seen that tank movie, Fury. Fury, yeah. Uh, he was in... I've seen Peanut Butter Falcon. That's a good movie. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, um, yeah I can't think of other ones. Um, what, yeah, I, what made me really fall good. in love with him? I mean, I, I like him. I, when, I, when he's in a film, I, I don't... I'm kind of um, my emotions are pretty ambivalent. I don't think I'm really looking forward to this because he's in it, but I'm no. always impressed by the film. But uh, his when he was in the Sia video for I think the song is Elastic Heart, I thought that was amazing, uh, and it's that one was, of my favorite music videos. So that's why I love him. That was because, such a good video, yeah, and a good song. Yeah, we listen to a lot of Sia in this house. So yeah, it's uh, and Cigarette as well, obviously. Any Norwegian pop star, um, Enemy of the State. You must have seen this film. I think I saw it at the time. Literally, it's been over twenty years really? since I saw it. Oh, yeah. you need you need to revisit this. You really do. I do. Okay. This is a film that because I of course I'm always secretly love seeing Gene Hackman in films, and um, oh, Will I Smith by the way, he has yeah. been he has been in bad films. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. So the the, the film is uh, from 1998, uh, directed by Tony Scott. So you know what you're getting. Uh, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, so you really know what you're getting. Um, and this stars Will Smith as an attorney who, through no fault of his own, uh, gets something passed to him by Jason Lee in a really good foot chase um, that is basically a, a MacGuffin that sets off the plot. It's this tape of a senator being killed by John Voight. And it, it, he has no idea he's got it. And all of a sudden, his family and his life get ripped apart. Credit cards get cancelled. Uh, threats. Again, a techno thriller, good. Um, and he goes on the run and tries to track down someone called Brill, played by Gene Hackman, or initially Gabriel Byrne, when you see him, which is a quite a nice touch, a little cameo, uh, just to try and get to the heart of what the hell's going on, because he is clueless at the start of this film, and that's quite cool. Um, it's just a really... It's two hours and 20 minutes long. Gene Hackman as well, I was reading that they think it's almost a callback to his role in the conversation because of the character oh, yeah. business like a like a sort of throw forward thing uh, is he which wearing is, like a slightly creepy rain coat in this or no he's wearing weirdly two mattress toppers that he's borrowed from Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
um, it is there are moments in this film because of course it's all about it's very um you know oh fear the government you know they, they've got their eye on you all the time sort of things paranoia um, thriller nice that does but, sound very 70s but now it, of course watching it i was just drinking in i i do you know what right i can't even remember what it was jason lee when they when they track him down when barry pepper scott khan and Jake Boosie track him down. Jesus. He is he's he hides this tape in the back of a games console, a handheld games console. Mm. And I had no idea what it was. And I thought, is that a prop? No, I rent it as some NEC, I can't remember what it's called now, NEC Blockbuster or something. So it's and not re- game.com. Oh no, no, it's not the it's not the Batman oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Gamecom. But I want one now because it's an enemy of the state. The same reason I own a talk yeah. boy. Um, so, yeah, it, um, it, it's Will Smith's on the run. It's a techno thriller. You've got supporting uh, Seth Green's in there. And yeah. he doesn't piss me off. He drops out of this film so fast. It's fantastic. Jack Black's in there. And, yes, yeah, just him going on the run and trying to track down uh, Gene Hackman to explain what's going on. Really fast paced. Really solid, solid uh, performances. Any um, unrealistic te- technology? Rupert, it is like you uh, in my mind, right? <laughs> Two things I want to say. One of them is that it contains, I think, one of the best foot chases in cinema. And I know my father, every time he watches The Great Escape, wants Steve McQueen to make that motorcycle jump. Right. When I watch this film, I want Jason Lee to not be hit by a fire engine. Um <laughs> As hard, <laughs> literally a full tilt. Uh, I always think, oh, come on, Jason, this time. Oh, no, there it is. Um, and the other thing is, uh, what were you going to say? I just want to mention foot chases. Point Break has a very good foot chase in it. I need to say that again. Tom Sizemore's in this film. He is sweating. And Philip Baker Hall uh, is in Hard Eight that everyone should watch. I need to watch Point Break again. I haven't seen it for a long time. I think I've seen it like three or four times and I've always been drunk. Holds uh, up pretty well. Uh, what about the remake? Is that is that good or is that? Does not hold up at all. <laughs> Even at the time. Mm. Uh, what you asked? You said oh, any unrealistic technology. Yeah, last thing I'll say about yeah. this film, which is a high recommendation from me. There's a scene at the start when Jason Lee pops something in. He runs through a lingerie shop and he goes past Will Smith and he drops this games console into his bag. <laughs> And runs off, and and Will Smith sort of says, "Oh hey, oh bye," doesn't notice till he gets home. You'd, Jack- in nineteen ninety eight, you'd feel that in your bag, oh. <laughs> especially if it came with like eight triple A, double A batteries. Yeah, especially if it was a full size Neo Geo with four games, each of which <laughs> is the size of a laser disc. Uh, and yeah, he's got it in just like a little like a bag. He's got a Chinese in it's one of those bags that's like always really taut and pulled. Yeah. So it's a transparent blue. He's like, oh, something else in there. Um, I think that's Metal Slug Twenty Five actually. Um, so yeah, so John Voight and his crack team of like Jack Black and Seth Green look at this CCTV footage. This nineteen ninety eight in store CCTV footage, which is probably like two forty p. And they rotate the image and see that the bag has shifted and something's been dropped in behind Will Smith. That 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 is what kicks off. Still the cannot happen. No, today. and never will because <laughs> it's a single two D image. So yeah, and when it was happening, I, I I watched this film about twenty or thirty times now. Um, and I was waiting. I always get amazed when they rotate it, and I I'm, I'm waiting for them to rotate the image and for someone to say. Can, can that happen? That, that's <laughs> real. 
it's possible. Yeah. Also, it's possible in Blade Runner. Gene well, Hackman's... In Blade Runner, it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't rotating the image. It was ridiculous. But... It was zooming in and enhancing. Which yes. Was yeah. And that was set in the future of 2019. So, um, Brill, by the way, if you write it down and put like a little strike through the L's, it's Brit. A little bit of trivia for everyone. Yep. Um, what what channel is that on? I was on Prime. I have, I don't think I've even looked at Netflix. <laughs> you got. I don't need to. Um. Okay. Well, I'll move on to a, a Prime. This one's on Prime as well. This is "Call Me by Your Name," um, which was nominated for Best Picture as well. This is back in 2017. This is made. And I thought I'd better check it out before Army Hammer's entire back catalogue is deleted from the internet. Um, that, man, that man's life. He must be looking at his cuticles and inhaling through gritted teeth at the moment. <laughs> he's he's in a spot of other. Um, so this is set in the early 80s in idyllic northern Italy in the summer. And a 17-year-old kid, Timothy, uh, played by Timothy Chalamet, uh, lives with his professor, father, and uh, family. And this 20-something student, Army Hammer, comes to stay for the summer. And Army Hammer, he's, he's confident, he's arrogant. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is, is frustrated and confused. They bicker and they bond. And Timothy Chalamet becomes infatuated with Army Hammer. First thing I'll say is it's a really amazing evocation of the 80s. So it's not like just constantly drawing attention to like, you know, neon and stuff like that. Because obviously this is like set in rural Italy sort of thing. So instead you get like kind of, you just get rubber shorts, pastel shirts, smoking around kids and really angular cars. So it's never fetishized. Um, And so Army Hammer, he's... His character, it's really about these two characters. And Army Hammer, his character's arrogance is sort of concealing, concealing this deep lack of confidence. Um, and it's actually Timothy Chalamet, the younger one, who makes the first tentative move. And the balance of power shifts and Army Hammer submits. And it's almost like an act of retaliation. He needs to regain control. He's not having this kid come onto him like without him being in control. And it's quite a nicely observed power struggle. Timothy Chalamet's character, he's quite a cocky little guy, but it's in a believable way that 17-year-olds are. He's sort of clueless and yet absolutely sure of everything. And he's got this pure, unbridled emotion manifesting as rage and impertinence. And it's a really, really good performance. And I'm very excited about him being starring in in june which has got to be out this year finally Mm. um so it's it's a gay love story but it's not some forbidden love under the cruel of uh, under the cruel eye of like disapproving parents because the only barrier is timothy chalamet himself and the far more repressive army hammer because actually timothy chalamet's parents are they know what's going on and they're actually really subtly trying to like kind of encourage it um sort of thing so that's quite refreshing um and it's like timothy chalamet's trying to force a heterosexual relationship on himself but he doesn't really feel it um and there's this really really nice speech by 
Timothy Chalamet's father at the end, where 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 the kind of it's not really a spoiler to say the relationship has to come to an end because it's a summer thing, but it's a really nice speech by his father at the end where he sits him down. And he says basically that he's he's trying to ensure that whatever happens, that the boy he needs to cherish the joy and pain of first love, and and it's a really positive movie overall, I'd say, and it's it's unusual to see like a, a gay romance without any kind of pathology or tragedy creeping into it um and amazingly given how progressive it is it was written by james ivory um who's in his late 80s who was in his late 80s i think he's dead now um and he's the one he was of merchant ivory no no he's he's 92 he's still going is he still going is he bloody yeah yeah so and and yeah so obviously merchant ivory did remains of the day and howard's end and all that so it's very much in the merchant ivory kind of wheelhouse period setting and wealthy people and lots of stifled sexuality Mitch and Ivory by the way um mm. it says his partner was Ismail Merchant so I assume they were a gay couple oh right I didn't yeah never thought about that um so yeah it looks gorgeous the film looks really nice um and it has this very laid-back pacing um which is okay because the performances are so good and the scenery is very lovely I don't think it's really meant to be terribly deep emotionally to be honest because teenagers aren't exactly deep emotionally but they do feel in a very painful way and the film does a really good job of capturing the sensations and this sense of cataclysm um, that comes with being an older teenager uh it's directed by luca guada guadagnino i don't know if i pronounced that right anyway he's the guy who made the suspiria remake recently uh and also known for making the Tilda Swinton movie, movies, the Euro dramas, I Am Love and The Bigger Splash. And this is a bit of a Euro trifle, really. It's it's quite long, languid romance and occasional punctuations of passion. But um, it's not exactly romantic, but quite true in the way that a young mind might romanticise what is essentially a bit of, well, rumpy-pumpy, really. Uh it's not boring, but it does depict boredom, or at least it's depicting a group of people without much to do except hang around in the sun and think. And I think good directors can do that. They can make boredom interesting in a way. Like, I, I, I'm going to have to refer to Andrei Tarkovsky again because he was the master of this. He master of having like a slow and deliberate, in, in inverted commas, pace, but always keeping your mind and senses engaged. And I think it's the same here. It, like, it's weird because it's probably an even longer film than like Nomadland, but I felt much closer to the characters and situations in this than I did in that film. So this is recommended. And that but was... It, call Me By Your Name on Prime. When you say that the relationship had to end... Is that because at some point Army Hammer just slashes open all of Timothy Chalamet's veins and just drinks all of his blood while he masturbates? Oh, this film is not over twenty years old, but you just—that's a massive spoiler, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, I did find that scene a little bit of a like a, an unusual diversion for Merchant yeah. Ivory, but you know, yeah, where, where Timothy Chalamet says, oh, "Oliver." 
shall we go into Florence and maybe like choose some wine cheeses and go to the riverbank and just uh, collect butterflies as we just drink and you know just enjoy ourselves and Amiyama says I have a slightly different vision of this afternoon <laughs> yeah we should have seen it coming it does involve the imbibing of liquid I'll grant you and me washing my hands in a river as I weep yes um, so there's not a picnic blanket on the floor um, <laughs> So I'm just looking at mine now. I've got a few left. I'm not going to... Oh, I will go through them. Um, I watched Bad Company, not that one, that one, or that one. I watched, I watched the um, film from 2002. Um, just This is another two-minute. Uh, starring Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. And you know, I watched the 1995 version last week and said it's a pretty like miserable and forgettable thriller the best part of it's just the the amounts of smoking and the, and the the sex scene that is in the center of the film which is quite guttural good this film is not very good um it is chris rock it's effectively the same plot as eagle eye now that i think about it um it's chris rock plays a sort of hustler who sells tickets in new york to the ball game sort of thing and he has a brother who he doesn't know exists that is really high up in the cia and does undercover work and anthony hopkins is a uh grizzled CIA agent that uh, sees Chris Rock's brother get killed in the line of duty and they need Chris Rock to replace him as in here you can see this is a fish out of water comedy already um, uh, and sort of train him up to be like his brother who was quite sort of erudite and rich to take his place uh, in this nuclear weapons arms deal with Peter Stamari good um, the film is it's just it's overly long it's directed by Joel Schumacher, produced by uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, but it's mm. oddly like pretty understated considering those names. Mm. There's no chemistry between Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock because Anthony Hopkins, there's no, there's no like back and forth. It's just mm. Chris Rock talks fast and Anthony Hopkins effectively rolls his eyes all throughout the film. So there's no right. like banter. They never really warm to each other, apart from, you know, it's a spoiler, but I don't care. No one needs to watch it, and it's 19 years. At the end of the film, when he just, they just sort of say, actually, I do like you a bit. So there's no, they're very much one-dimensional through it all. Suddenly revelator is it? Chris Rock is effectively, feels like he's just doing sections of his standard routines through it. And um, is obviously under his veneer of... uh, street wiseness is intelligent but they have to sort of bring that out the main problem with the film is that it doesn't need to exist because mm. we see at the start of the film this arms deal this the pre-deal goes down uh where they say we'll meet up in a, you know in 10 days and do the actual deal and it's chris rock's supposedly twin brother and anthony hopkins and anthony hopkins is effectively the guy that does the deal chris rock's brother is just sort of arranges it and stands back quietly so all they really have to say to chris rock is look we need you but you don't really need to say much but no the middle 45 minutes of the film is them taking him to like brandy tasting showing him how to taste wine <laughs> um making him ha- comedy sequences where they try to see if he can fool his like elderly neighbor who's got like a yappy dog and you think what this this is all like total bollocks and and because it's not funny and it doesn't need to be in there you just think just, just take him to the arms deal and just say he's lost his voice from smoking too many fags, and, and then just let Anthony Hopkins do the talk. That's what I would have done if I was the head of the 
the thing is, I could have done it in that accent because Anthony Hopkins is Welsh. So I just saved them two hours. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, and then the end of it just turns into a shootout, and then they realise that he's CIA material. And you think none of this, none of this rings true. None of it is funny. It all feels really perfunctory. And mm. and and I was just, I was just tired. And every time, like Chris Rock, I'm sure. If I was in the right frame of mind and I watched one of his, I saw him live, watched a comedy special, I'd find it funny. But when mm. it's just like a really bland, flat film, I'm like sort yeah. of injected with bursts of, of sort of quick talk. You're like, there's not enough going on here f- for me to enjoy that. There needs to be something for that to bounce off. I can't just have Anthony Hopkins looking at you and sighing. You know, it doesn't. It, yeah, it sounds like a film that rests almost solely on that chemistry really and if it's not there then there's no film yeah because you Um, can get away with all the like like irrelevant crap in the middle if it's funny or if there's some sort of warmth or character development there but if it's not there then they don't even have the kind of i mean even if they did all that say they did all the wine testing stuff which really goes on by the way all that nonsense in the middle Mm. and then peter stamari like I don't know at the end of the film when they meet up with him for this deal or whatever if he pulled out a wine and said oh you know I've got this Malbec let me know what you think it doesn't fit into it even in like a sort of slightly right. strange way it just so it's not even foreshadowing anything it's just these yeah. are just situations like a sitcom in fact yes like haha look at him he's really streetwise he's never drunk expensive wine before haha he's gonna drink it and spit it out and, and say you got any beer you know it's like really low end rent stuff. <laughs> Yeah. So just don't watch it. Um, okay. It nearly broke. Are you just collecting films called Bad Company now? <laughs> I might watch the one from the 70s just to complete my collection. <laughs> you have to now, don't you? What's that on? You know... It's on Prime. Oh, actually, no, I think it was on um, Stars, Disney Plus. Okay. I do I do tell a lie. I think that was the last one I watched on Disney Plus, yeah. All right. Well, uh, also on Disney Plus, because there's some pretty dark stuff on it now, um, Bringing Out the Dead... Oh, I was hovering over this. Yes, this was made in 1999. Uh, so this is Martin Scorsese re-teaming with Paul Schrader. Set in New York. Uh, Elmer Bernstein doing the music. So it's got Taxi Driver 2 written all over it, really. Except this time, it's Nicolas Cage as a paramedic prowling the mean streets and becoming depressed and disillusioned. Um, it's set in the I've, early 90s. I've got to say, I'm really, really excited about what you're going to say about this because this film has been on my radar for over 20 years. Okay, so well, I mean, it's it it's, it shares a lot with Taxi Driver. To be honest, this is still the Mean Streets. This is early 90s, so before, still before New York was cleaned up. Um, it's got miserable narration in it. It's got you know the classic Scorsese fluid camera work. It's got the classic. Hack and slash editing by Thelma Shoemaker. So it's got all of that stuff. And the setting is that the, the medical service is in disarray, basically. Hospitals are like prisons during a riot. Nicolas Cage saves this older guy um, and befriends his daughter, played by Patricia Arquette. And she's basically this sliver of light in a terrible world, really. Um, Nicolas Cage has this unknown sickness eating him from the inside. This is all very Paul Schrader stuff. Uh, and there's also this deadly drug called Red Death on the streets, which is killing people everywhere. Nicholas Cage is specifically haunted by the ghost of this homeless girl he couldn't save. And he's just consumed by the guilt he feels about not being able to save her. 
And we see Nick Cage, he's rolling around with a variety of like team mates. Uh, you've got John Goodman, who's on the verge of quitting. You've got Ving Rames, who's like this basically a preacher, really. Is he good? Tom- is Ving Rames good like he always is? Yeah, he's really good. Actually, he's really good. funny. <laughs> like he'll show up at places um, where like there's an angry crowd or whatever around like uh, the the ailing person and to kind of disperse them he'll just start make, uh, making these huge preaching speeches uh, and like calling upon god and stuff it's quite funny and you got tom sizemore who's just like a thug who wants he's just looking for fights all the time there are definite shades of bad lieutenant i would say especially when nice. nick cage is with tom sizemore because they just go out looking for thrills and violence um and there's this other guy they keep bumping into, this homeless guy called Noel, who's possibly a psychotic. Um, and he kind of connects Nicolas Cage and Patricia Arquette as this potentially unsavable person who just keeps getting into trouble. Anyway, it's all arranged in this way. So it's really just a bunch of interactions with various colourful characters, really, at different intersections. And Cage is trying to make sense of it. So it's sort of like a kind of odyssey type thing. And it's quite funny, actually, because he's so desperate to be fired from his job. And he literally keeps just asking his boss, please, can I get fired today? And his boss says, oh, I just can't do it today. Sorry, I, I need I need all the people I can get my hands on. Definitely tomorrow, though. I'll definitely fire you tomorrow. Why doesn't he That's just quit? <laughs> um, I guess it's because then he won't because then he won't get, get payoff. Or whatever. Yeah. Who plays his boss? Anyone we know? No, I guess it probably is someone famous. But I don't know them myself. Um, so yeah, it's all he's. It's just growing disillusionment, really. And he, he says things like, "My training was less about saving lives, about and more about bearing witness." And this is where Paul Schrader's very nihilistic outlook can get a bit wearying because he has characters say stuff like, uh, "We're all dying," or "This city will kill you," and kind of this kind of stuff. But I do like the scenarios he brings up, and they. They test your sympathy and your empathy. It's like, you know, you end up asking yourself, is the is this guy sick or is he evil? Or and should we like value the life of a dealer the same as anyone else, for example? This is it sets up some quite cool ethical questions like that. And I like the relationship between Nicolas Cage and Patricia Arquette, because Nicolas Cage is basically feeding on his emotions and going mad, really, whilst Patricia Arquette, I mean, she's going through a rougher time, frankly, and yet she's processing her grief and her anger in a, an appropriate way. And I think that's kind of why Nicolas Cage is so fascinated by her, because it's like, how do you do it? How do you actually just process your emotions in a normal, healthy way? And and it is a nice scene where Nicolas Cage is, he says to, I think it's to Patricia Arquette, he says, he sees all this awfulness around him on the streets, but then for days and days, but then one good thing can happen. Just one good thing. And it can totally transform his like outlook. And that was something I noticed at Samaritans, for example, you could get awful, awful things happening constantly. Um, and then it just takes one kind of hopeful moment to make it all worthwhile. If you see what I mean, you can take a lot, but all you need is that one sliver of light. And actually, there's. I, I like the way that um, that Scorsese shoots the film because he does use. It's a very dark film, obviously, because it's all set at night. Mm. And 
but he uses this really really swallowing darkness but he'll often punctuate the darkness like cut through it with these really blinding shards of light it's like this kind of holy light reaching down and i there's catholic imagery all over the place um like where they visit this crack den and just find a supposed virgin in labor for example stuff like that so you get again very bad lieutenant vibes um it's it is a marginally less hopeless film than taxi driver i'd say it's it's serves as a pretty good companion piece um and it, it i guess your capacity for it will be how much horror and iniquity you can take really because it is just relentless uh and it's it is very bleak but almost brilliant i would say i think it just i just think it can't quite shake off the feeling that it's a taxi driver remix i guess because of the talent behind it 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 feels like it's burdened by the shadow of that film a bit well i've never seen taxi driver so and i've always wanted to watch this so i think i probably yeah really i'm quite looking forward to that then i am going to watch watch them as a double bill oh that could be quite saucy actually i mean it's rare that you find two films like that that you know especially by such a director as martin scorsese and yeah yeah, i'm gonna gonna have to do that watchable maybe we have to do it rupert maybe we shall maybe we but, have uh, <laughs> maybe we won't <laughs> maybe baby like a, what's his name like a drew barrymore film um i just realized that this film um you were gonna say probably <laughs> um yeah bringing up the dead 1999 the same year as eight millimeter which isn't exactly a barrel of laughs again from nicholas cage so that must have been a full-on oh. year for it we must have thought bloody hell i'm miserable which is why i made gone in 60 seconds straight after which ties in very nicely with what i was going to say about his jacket right mm. gone in 60 seconds i forgot to say in my brief review of it last time when it all ramps up at the end you know in raw deal and in commando before the big shootout arnie guns up and teenagers everywhere unite and love it right Yes. In Gone in 60 Seconds, there's a scene where he goes upstairs in front of everyone and he opens up a chest and he takes off the jacket he's been wearing throughout the whole film, which is nice and fits him and puts on another jacket to represent like his bad boy days that he's recapturing that makes everyone like gasp, like, oh my God, he's got the jacket on. And this jacket does not fit him. And as he walks down the stairs, it's, and the music probably done by Brian Bloody Tyler, like ramps up and everyone like looks at each other like, wow, Nick's back with his jacket on. I look. I looked at the jacket, right, and it's too long for him, and it's also <laughs> appears to be like made of, you know, like a uh, tire rubber, so that kind Ooh. of that rubber that always looks dusty, if you know what I mean. Yeah. This, this thin, dusty, ill-fitting, cheap-looking jacket that looks like it would constantly ruck up because if he moves his arm along his side, it would be rubber on rubber, and it just looks awful, and it looks like he'd start sweating as well, and it just permeates the last 20 minutes of the film i just kept looking at his jacket and thinking why why is that scene in there you look it, it's crap you look silly and everyone else looks <laughs> ridiculous for loving it so much um i'm gonna move on to another film uh if, if you're okay to keep on keep on going yeah, yeah yeah the block island sound which is the only film i watched on netflix um this is my film of the week because mm-hmm. I watched this a while ago and I realized that I still kind of think about it every now and again. And it was one of those films that I watched when we had a little break sort of thing. And I, it, too many weeks had passed and I couldn't remember it very well, which weirdly works in this review's favor because it's, it, it, you don't, I'd like people if they watch the block Island sound to not know anything about it other than that. It's a 
I'd say a horror and just go into it okay. Okay. because even looking at what the genre is on Wikipedia kind of spoils it slightly. So <laughs> just dive in. Uh, it's a really low key, low budget film uh, that kicks off with a, an, an older guy waking up on a boat and it's just in, completely disheveled. And there's like a dog's lead on the floor and no dog. And uh, he goes back home where he lives with his son, who's a bit of seen as a bit of a town loser. It's, um, in this sort of islet in America, you know, in, in the, effectively in the middle of nowhere sort of thing. And the the son is seen as a bit of a town loser and, you know, just goes up, just boozing and he sort of looks after his dad. But everyone says, are you looking after your dad or are you just sort of bumming around and living off him? And his sister's quite successful. I think she's a marine biologist. And all these fish are uh, turning up just dead on land and she has no idea why so she comes down with them a couple of sort of work colleagues to stay while they study to stay with her family and there's obviously a real disconnect between her brother and her and mm. the it's like the father is is losing his mind through to, to alzheimer's and the son you think the son doesn't want to sort of admit it because he's happy with his life but the, the sister's like, I think dad needs help from what you're saying. He's like, no, no, it's fine. I'm here for him. It's totally fine. Don't worry about it. It's nothing. And the film sort of goes off on that launch pad. And I will say nothing more about it other than I think it's got one of my favorite endings of the last few years, which is unusual in a mm. horror because usually it tapers off. <laughs> yes. But I was, when, when the last scene, I thought, good, good. So uh, it's not, I, I, I don't even want to say what it's not. I don't know how this film did. And I don't know if people will be disappointed if they go into it wanting like a huge explosive horror or a monster movie. It's, but I loved it. It's a very quiet film and I was hips deep and it is one I will watch again. It's on Netflix. So is it, um, is it Netflix original maybe? Uh, oh, no, it's it not. It would really have say anything now. Um, no, I don't think it is. I'm I'm clearly adding it to my watch list right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 very much up your strata. I can't. It was one of those films that I watched it and I thought, surely, surely, like this is this is one of the films of the year that people are going to be talking about. And in all fairness, it's so understated that even I kind of weirdly forgot to bring it up in Kino Kingdom because there's I didn't want to say much about it apart from the fact that I thought it was awesome. So I'm glad yeah. I come back to it now but yeah definitely um the block island sound is a massive recommendation good um i'm definitely gonna watch that it sounds like it's not much stressor um i'll very quickly if i can go through a cover of lake placid um <laughs> which was which i watched on rakuten the oh, worst streaming I, service can i can i just say before because i know we had this brief conversation about a week ago and i, I thought yeah. i'd said this in the last Kino Kingdom, but I didn't. Right. I sat down and I thought, I want to watch a Predator film. And right. I thought, Predators, oh God, I love Adrian Brody. And I, I haven't seen that <laughs> film for ages. And I pressed play and it came up, Adrian Brody, or sort of, it started off and it starts off with Adrian Brody in a free fall, parachute free fall. Yeah, yeah. And I was sitting there with my sleeping son in my lap and a cup of coffee in front of me, and I was completely in the mood. And I paused the film and turned it off and chose Enemy of the State purely on the fact that I remembered that Topher Grace was in it. <laughs> Even the thought of that man being in the film is, is enough. No, I'm not watching that. So, yeah. yeah. And his, yeah, that character in that film especially. Mm. 
It is unforgivable. Um, so Lake Placid then. This was made in 1999. It was directed by Steve Miner, uh, who of course directed House with William Cat back in the day. Back the in original. The 80s. Yeah, which is a, a good oh, wow. comedy horror. Uh, I think he also did a couple of Friday the 13th sequels. And yes, he made Warlock as well. Um, so Lake Placid, it spawned, I think, about 850 sequels. Uh, but I think the surprising thing about that is why? Because it's not very good. But <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching it originally when it first came out, actually, all those years ago and thinking, oh, it's not that good. And nothing has changed. Weird. But um, so Bridget Fonda plays well she plays this city girl trope really that we've seen it's throughout all of film history from the african queen temple of doom romancing the stone where it's a city girl in a kind of rural environment and she's just squealing and tripping on her high heels that sort of thing she's a paleontologist brendan gleason is a local sheriff bill pullman is the fish and game officer and they come together to investigate a violent killing at like placid oh and oliver platt comes along as a crocodile expert Good. and betty white from the golden girls plays a bonkers lady by the lake um who she offers live cows to this giant crocodile which is what has been doing all the killing um i will say that the film nails the comedy tone a bit better than Anaconda I would say and I did quite like Brendan Gleeson's he's the sheriff character is constantly exasperated I quite like that and the CG is passable and Stan Winston's makeup is obviously brilliant this is Stan Winston uh, the problems come with the script I, and I think we're meant to find Oliver Platt's character charmingly roguish but i just think he comes across as a rude misogynist personally the script is unbelievably smarmy and the interpersonal drama is just based on really tiresome predictable mockery of each other the dialogue sounds like it was written by teenagers like like at one point oliver platt says maybe you can bite the bark off my log like and then and then someone else says, oh, if, I had a, if I had a dick, this is where I'd tell you to suck it. And it's just really grating, like really juvenile kind of humor like that. I don't want to call it humor because it's not funny. It's just um, words in an order. Yeah. I'd, uh, Bridget Fonda and Bill Pullman have some good chemistry, surprisingly. And their relationship is quite actually quite sensitively handled in a way. It's one of the few parts of it which feels in any way sincere and in any way adult. Uh, and I I think the reason I never enjoyed it is because it's it's a B-movie that's trying to be a B-movie. Like, I, I see it, I see this in the same category as I would, like Mega Shark, Sharknado, all those kind of movies, you know? Films that kind of self-justify. Oh, right. So it's, right. oh, that's a problem. So... And I, there's no fun in that. I I think it's a great B movie, be ones which, or a great bad movie, shall we say, would be a, a films which strive for competence, competence but fall short. If you see what I mean? Uh, 
I didn't realize it was doing that whole thing about, yeah, sort of winking at the audience. Like, it's okay if this is a bit crap because we know we're a bit crap. I, hate I think that. of like the like the gold standard for like a B movie, which is probably aware it's a B movie. It would be something like The Mist, the Frank Darabont film, which is brilliant. Yeah. And, but he it it takes itself seriously. You know, it's silly and over the top and like hideously gory and, and all that kind of stuff. And it has quite broadly sketched characters in that, all the B movie stuff, but it takes itself seriously and it's trying to be, it's, it's not drawing attention to its B moviness, if you see what I mean. And I think that's a much better way of making a movie like this, but yeah, this is just like, so this must have been like 99 you said yes um, so it's a precursor to those kind of films that we know what we're talking about you know the those and all that the problem with that is i I remember watching lake placid and finding it funny i would have been 14 13 14 15 and the target audience yes and i think i remember it as it was the first film i sort of saw oliver platin apart from the one i'm going to mention in a second briefly because you reminded me of it and I remember thinking, oh, this is quite fun, actually. It's like a fun horror. Um, but I'm tempted to watch that, to be honest, I, because it was very much a film I haven't thought about in a long time. And I only know Oliver Platt's in it. I don't even remember Bridget Fonda or Bill Pullman. And if I don't remember Bridget Fonda being in a film when I was 14, then <laughs> obviously Oliver Platt made a serious impression on me. Um, I just you remind- think it's miscast. Like, why you have him as the swaggering rogue he's brilliant like, in uh what's, what's that film with i always say i want to say the ice harvest but it's not the one with the one weaver and kevin Clark. the the one with the john storm. the ice no that's the ice storm the ice harvest is the one with john cusack yes. and yeah and billy Wilson. he's amazing in that as like a, a bumbling drunk yeah um, and he's really good in in flatliners as well but again kind of bumbling kind of a fool fool with a heart sort of thing and that that's what that's what he does best. I just think him, the same character he plays and don't of, say a word with Michael Douglas as well. I just, yeah, it just. Mm, um, you, it's you, not you, a break. you did remind me, by the way, by saying Oliver Platt of a film from 1999 or 2000 called Ready to Rumble, a wrestling film with Scott Kahn and David Arquette in it. And I am 100% going to watch that for the next time we do something because I used to love that film when I was a kid. Um, yeah, so I will watch. I think I might watch Lake Placid. And was that on Disney Plus? No, Prime, you said, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Lake Placid. Were, no, that was Rakuten. Right. So you'd have to actually pay for that. I'm not watching Don't. that. Sounds crap. Um, mm. I watched a film on Prime called Honest Thief, starring Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson doing things we've seen before. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite frankly. Um I'm just checking. The director's Mark Williams. Has he done anything else that I already direct? A Family Man. I haven't seen that. Blacklight. Mm. I haven't seen that. Okay, it's not the the guy that probably too busy playing snooker. Bloody hell. Um, I said Mark Williams, not Stephen Hendry. Sorry, Um, (laughs) John Parrott. Uh, Yeah. So honestly, this is a film where. It is a bizarre film because it's it's a typical Liam Neeson as an older, older, very capable man. But it's the whole setup is preposterous. You've got he's a bank robber that has apparently stolen millions, millions of dollars over the years. 
but has never spent a penny of it because he finds the the stealing is the real the real thrill, right? So he he just goes around nicking basically, and eventually he meets and falls in love with a woman played by Kate Walsh, and he she is enough for him to change his ways. What's good about this, by the way, is she's the same age; she's like in her fifties, so it's it's right. actually it's not some twenty year old. And he he tells her that he's an electronics expert, but he doesn't tell her about his past. Uh, but he, he falls in love with her pretty early on in the film and decides that he is going to give all the money back to the FBI, turn himself in, serve his jail sentence, and then come out and and have a proper life with her, even though he could just do none of those things and have a proper life with her, and nothing would change. Um, he When he calls the FBI, uh, he gets through to Jeffrey Donovan, who is a, a good man, and Robert Patrick, and they send Jay Courtney around to... <laughs> to say get the money bring him in mm. and of course jay courtney says do you know what i might just shoot him and, and nick the money um and so he's a tinker he is a bloody sausage that boy so what turns what it what is a simple exchange in effect turns to be very complicated because uh the fbi believe that liam neeson is just someone who's messing around and prank calling uh because jay courtney says there was no other hotel he steals the money and of course uh, someone, Robert Patrick gets shot in the exchange. They blame Liam Neeson, and then a chase kicks off. This, the film is is it's like okay. Uh, mm. I will forget about it within six months. I, I like. I can film. see you watching this again and, and, and saying years time <laughs> and talking and saying these same words. Um, the 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 real problem is that it's just so forgettable, and also it features. I like how his love interest is a similar age. And, you know, I like Jay Courtney. Jeffrey Donovan plays a really funky character in this. Rob Patrick's always cool to see in a film. And Liam Neeson can carry a film. But it's so, it's so by the numbers. And mm. it's and in such a ridiculous, it's almost like they're saying, oh, see, whatever he does now, you've got a bit of sympathy for him because because he's trying to give them money back see so he's, and you think it doesn't but that's just it's just ridiculous isn't it, it, it why would he do that um he's not honest the, the fact that he's never spent a penny but has also never worked yeah. which means he's been on the claim so if anything <laughs> he's taken on yeah he's been on the cindy crawford's got a mole um <laughs> So that sounds very fanciful. It's a very <laughs> forced way of removing, uh, like, yeah, yeah. giving you sympathy. I mean, um, he steals stuff, but he doesn't take any of it. Really, there is not even a tenner from someone's wallet. As a father, Rupert, you'll appreciate this. I paused this film because there's a scene where it all kicks off, and he meets his love interest to say, "Look, this is what's happened. You need to sort of go into hiding while I sort this out." And they're in a park, right? A park near a river, and there's there's a full swing set and a slide next to the river's edge, and it's a sheer drop, and there's no fence. And I was watching it, thinking that is the most dangerous park I've ever <laughs> seen as a child. A literally an open park with no fencing around it and swings that go over a freezing cold New York River. They would be dead by the time their feet touched it. And I just, it, I couldn't, this whole conversation goes on there, this whole, when he's giving her his history and she's telling him that she still loves him. And I'm, I couldn't stop looking at the roundabout thinking, someone pushes that and loses their pointing. Gone! Gone! So, yeah, it's it's contained, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward thriller that you can chuck on if you want with a hangover, but it contains the most dangerous child's park 
in cinema history. That sounds like the most dramatic scene. Mm. (laughs) Just the sheer internal tension of watching people. Even watching Liam Neeson, I thought if you risk their lives, it's not you're gone. I can see your breath. You go on that river, boom, the old ticker's gonna stop. Let alone a two year old leaning over to pick up a Tootsie roll or whatever they're called off the floor, probably made with figs. One of those things you hear in films like Tootsie Pole. Oh, that sounds really nice. And you look at the ingredients online, it's like, ah, oh, it's just made from tongues. <laughs> it's made of gravel and dates. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I won't bother with that then. When was it made? This year. Really? Oh, okay. Robert Patrick must be looking quite old now. He's, he's looking fine. He went through a phase of looking a little bit, uh, a little bit, but now he's fine. He's, uh, <laughs> so I think he's been uh, eat, looking after what he eats. Quite a well, it went, it went through a period of looking a bit Matthew Perry. Um, okay. I'm going to, uh, we got a little bit of time left, haven't we? So, okay, let's, let's talk about Secret Window. This is the other Rakuten film I chose. Oh, Only my just- God. I absolutely adore this film. <laughs> 2004 this was made it's based on a Stephen King short story called Secret Window, Secret Garden and Johnny Depp plays a writer implausibly called Mort who is suffering from writer's block in this remote house um, John Turturro comes up to him um, uh, from Mississippi um, to accuse him of plagiarism in the short story um, of course Johnny Depp's like, well, no, it's not true, but okay. Anyways, he starts getting more threatening, uh, and then it becomes murderous. Um, so while Johnny Depp is at first resisting, once things get violent, he goes out to try and prove that this story was actually his own. But the murders aren't stopping, and he is being framed, so he's going to have to try and kill John Turturro himself. Um, so... Yeah, as as this Mort character, as he descends down this rabbit hole of blackmail and madness, it becomes more and more silly. And it and it has this absurdist energy and dark humour, which I enjoyed a lot. And it, But it's also married to this kind of quite hopeless atmosphere, which is classic Stephen King. Um, and I like how Johnny Depp's character uses, because we're with him on his own most of the time, Like I like how he uses humour to keep himself vaguely sane. And it's a really good Johnny Depp performance, actually. And it's it's full of nervousness and impatience and sarcasm. Um, it's written and directed by David Coop, who will... We know that name, don't we? I don't know. I don't know how you meant to pronounce it. Kep? Um, anyway, Kep, yeah. Right. So he writes and directs. His last film before this was Stir of Echoes. <laughs> and this has the same kind of confident Hitchcockian style but the difference here is that it has a script that actually makes sense it feels like it really feels like with Secret Window it's it's like a safe pair of hands it, it feels like the work of a filmmaker who has created exactly what was in their mind which is always a nice feeling and it doesn't feel like a short story spread too thin though it is only 90 minutes so um and there's a there's a great sequence where Johnny Depp is he's trying to hide some bodies and completely messes it up um and in the middle of his panic he gets a call from his ex wanting a heart to heart about their lost child and it's just like he's 
you know, he's being blackmailed, he's being friends and all this kind of stuff. And he, she calls him to have this heart to heart, like on a bed sort of thing. And he is not in the right state of mind. It's just like one word answers to everything. It's so fun. So anyway, by the end, it's pretty predictable where it's all going, although not necessarily what will happen when it gets there. So it's familiar territory for Stephen King, I'd say, but it, I found it to be gruesomely fun. And there's some good supporting acting from Timothy Hutton, of dark half fame maria mm. bello and of course charles s dutton good so i like this a lot and i recommend it i am i thought you would uh, before i say what i th- think you were going to say and what i think about the film okay. um i what i love about it is as he's as he's being blackmailed by john turturro and he's trying trying to get to the, like the heart of this blackmail and try to get some sort of proof the things that keep happening to foil him a brilliant the it's it's like yeah. he'll open like an envelope and be like right this will sort this out and then he'll pull out the I know, bit of paper needs and there'll be a bit cut out and he's like oh come on <laughs> and it just tickles me out it's like he's it's really up against him i yeah. thought you would just say this was ridiculous because i it seems like knockabout fun to me but in the same way as this and the ninth gate this mm-hmm. with frank langella this to me is like peak depth like yes. this, I think those two films, um, the the Ninth Gate and um, Secret Window, are like brilliant, like really rewatchable, uh, like light horror films, and I I never get bored of seeing them because there's just there's always a sense of fun and humor to them. Yes, it's the to- it's it's totally perfect, and that's why I, it genuinely feels like a Hitchcock film because Hitchcock could, it, he was so good at doing that, like getting the tone right of having it utterly silly, but having the most horrendous things happen and without losing you. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, yeah. Johnny, Johnny Depp is so good at being a, mm. you know, a relative, he's got amazing here as well, a, a relative sort of every man getting more and more of his depth and just panicking and just like panicking towards the end of the film. So yeah, John Turturro is such a malevolent force and he's so confident that he can just mess Johnny Depp up. It's so threatening because he's just like whatever Johnny Depp says, like whatever threats Johnny Depp comes back with, John Turturro just brushes them off constantly. <laughs> it's so harsh. Um, yeah, so I enjoyed that a lot. Secret Window, worth paying for. Um, I have got three films left. Can I sma- do like pretty quick smashes through them? Yeah, I think so. We can. We got. We'll go till eight o'clock, shall we? That, that's ten minutes. Yeah, we perfect. Can that, can't we? Um, I watch the Monuments Men. Um, uh, directed okay. and starring, uh, directed by and starring George Clooney, and um, the, uh, just again, I'm just going to be really quick, so we've only got ten minutes left. Um, I thought this was interesting in that you've got these people whose job in the in during the Second World War was to just save art and literature and go around and just try and reclaim as much of it as possible. Great cast with uh, Matt Damon, Bill Murray, John Goodman, uh, Hugh Bonneville, Kate Blanchett, blah 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 blah, but. It was so light. It was such a lightness of there was such a lightness of touch to the film that it it made mm. it very slightly forgettable. I I kind of wish that it, it it was a film that felt like it sort of could have been a little bit slower and more ponderous, and I would have enjoyed it more because when when I was drinking in Paris and which is a place I love and uh, and and it has you know Matt Damon and uh, Kate Blanchett and I was really drinking in the atmosphere. I was thinking yes yes yes, and when the the uh, monuments men themselves were sort of peering off and 
bonding in their various ways. Bob Balaban is amazing in this film in the way he's, he sort he's of always brilliant. He's such a it's such a wonderful character to play with, with Bill Murray because obviously Bill Murray is just cracking jokes and Bob Balaban is just has no time for him. But it, it doesn't. It's never it never kind of plays into the audience's hands if you know what I mean. He's always just completely resolute to the to the character on the page and it just comes. I don't know. It just comes across as I liked him a lot. He's like a, mm. I I wanted more of him in the film. And I liked all that sort of buddy stuff, but it felt like there was so much going on, and then it built up to like a nice little, nice little ending. But the the thrust of the plot, I felt, of them desperately getting to this place to get this certain uh, these these important historical and religious artifacts, I almost thought, oh, that's kind of getting in the way. I'm just enjoying listening to people talk, um, and mm. I I kind of wish it was a much longer film that spent a lot more time with its characters because I was they were all very distinct and they all had a part to play and I I wish there was more interplay and I wish there was less of a focus on you know shit we've got to get to this place and do this thing so mm. I enjoyed it but not as much as I wanted to yeah I, when you when you when you said monuments men I was just thinking of saying the word gentle yes yeah, there's no. I mean, as you know, I don't watch war films, but mm. I fancy George Clooney. So it's just, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes it's those things come out. Um, but yeah, I was uh, I was expecting it to be a little bit more heavy duty. That was kind of my foray into war films, and even for me, it was too distant from you know. I assume what it's actually like. Uh, another thing, I, another film I watched was Kingsman, which I enjoyed. Uh, I didn't have a problem with the the anal joke at the end because to me the jokes in the film were so hit and miss. It was just another joke that mm. missed. I didn't. Um, I, it, it had the touch of the you know we watched Grimsby. We said that mm. we enjoyed the film, uh, but we were a bit concerned that maybe our expectations were too low. Mm. I think I haven't watched this film before, and I liked the the idea of a, a slight spoof on the Bond films. Yeah, and obviously Colin Firth being in it and Mark Strong, whom I fancy. I was kind of on board with it but i wish that the film was more about them and this taron edgerton playing eggsy because i don't know the thought of it in the same way with bad company not that one that one or that one with chris rock it's like okay get this getting this really streetwise british kid into the secret service I'd much rather just watch Colin Firth do his thing and like knock that whole thing on the head. As it stood, that's obviously not the direction the film went in, but I enjoyed it. Mm. I but... think the next Kingsman film is about that. Oh, yeah. I think probably, it's a prequel. I probably will enjoy that. But but yeah, I I found it a little bit too winky. And But yeah, I, I remember at the time reading about that final joke and just thinking it's just one of many jokes that failed to me, so I don't... I yeah, don't... I think the issue was that it was like the... The final joke. I think if you found it anywhere else in the film, you just be like, "Well, that's kind of consistent with his character and that." So, yeah. um, and it's consistent with the tone of the film. I I think that yeah, it's just it's not particularly funny, but not particularly offensive or anything. Yeah, I but yeah, I I I kind of laughed at a few bits, uh, although in my mind and never out loud, and I enjoyed the action set pieces, um, but. Mm. It feels very much like something I'll never really watch again. It's a mid-ranger to me. I enjoyed Eagle Eye. One is not very good. I won't bother with that then. I'll just watch the prequel. And um, my final film, which I'm just going to squeeze in, uh, is one of the most irritating films I've ever seen, uh, called The Fourth Kind, directed by Olatunde 
Osin Samni. Right. Which is tough for me to say because it's the first time I've looked at it, but it's it's important that I say his name because I'm going to say something else in a minute. Um, one second. Is it weird? Oh, hang on. Oh, no, I think I've got this. This isn't the person I thought. Oh. Oh, hang on. I need to do something for a second because... Is, is this research on the fly? Honestly, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, Rupert. Oh, no, it, I am right. Right, that's good. I was right. It's just for some reason, since I've done my research, his entire Wikipedia entry appears to have changed, which is bizarre. Anyway, um, uh, so this is a film, right? It started off and pissed me off. So uh, you press play okay. in this film, The Fourth Kind, 2009, American science fiction and psychological thriller. And you see Mila Jovovich walking towards the camera with some bad CG forestry background saying, introducing itself mm-hmm. as an actor. I'm Mila Jovovich, and what you're about to see is real. I play the part of blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, well, this seems a bit off. So I paused it, went online, and within five seconds found out it's not real. It's just a pseudo-documentary. So instantly I thought, I right. hope you don't rely on you trying to trick me to, to make this work. And unfortunately... Unfortunately, that's the only card it's got. So this this the film kicks off, and uh, Mila Jovovich plays a doctor, Abigail Tyler, who lives in a place called Nome in Alaska, which apparently has a like is just <laughs> constantly getting involved in alien abductions and people going missing and so on. And the film does this thing of whenever she's interviewing someone, even if it's someone like um, Elias Koteas, whom I fancy. Um, it'll do this split screen thing where it'll show like so the, the actors and then on the other side of the screen, supposedly the real people, like right. with archival footage. Really? Tedious. Tedious. Mm. And of course, so you're thinking, right, this, so it's like a triple layer of things that are designed to piss me off. It's <laughs> one, it's a bad film. Two, mm. it's, it's, a pseudo, it's a pseudo documentary making out that it's a real documentary and three mm. it's based on alien abductions which are bollocks anyway so i was thinking oh there's a lot here that really isn't isn't making my biscuit my sports biscuits float in my cup of milky tea with 17 sugars in it and i was just thinking no, I'm, I'm not going on board with this and the film goes on and on and on and i thought god this is like a really tedious unless you believe absolutely in alien abductions and are completely on board with the fact that this is a real documentary there's nothing here it's just it's just um people filming um because she's a psychologist filming sort of uh, meetings and then the screen going fuzzy and hearing voices and stuff and there's a bit where a, a dashboard cam on a police car captures um her children being sucked out of the roof into space and the cop screaming saying Oh my God, what's happening? What's happening? Next scene, it's her saying, My kids have been kidnapped. The dashboard footage we have just seen, and Will Patton saying, Oh, come on, stop talking bollocks. And I thought, you, One of your men, one of your men has just seen this and filmed it. So don't like knock over that. Like, so now there's that as well. So now you're like literally pushing actual evidence that exists in the logic in this film aside. That was when I lost my patience with it. And as I was watching this film thinking, this isn't very good. Uh, I, uh-huh. I clicked on Olatende Osinsamni's filmography and I realized that he directed that film Evidence with Stephen Moyer. 
Oh God! Do you remember that awful, awful film where the woman gets blowtorched in half? And I said, <laughs> I'm not going to watch any more of your films. Also, it does the whole um, M Night Shyamalan thing of like it starts off with this grainy, supposedly VHS footage of the director mm-hmm. interviewing the supposed real psychologist for this film. So oh, it just it's, stop it already. Just stop, stop. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not. I, I'm not watching any more of his films. I'm done with that man. Um, and that is the fourth kind what where where are these if you can guess available? if you can guess with that film, that is that's going to be a prime it's, it's primed for prime i think it's actually on netflix oh is it yeah you let us down netflix pull your socks up mate um so yeah sorry kingsman was on amazon prime uh the honest thief was on prime the fourth kind was on Netflix. I just want to finish by saying Renee Zellweger is <laughs> in Case 39 with Ian McShane, who's in John Wick 3 with Mark Dacascus. Only took me three months. Three months it took you to say those words. What was that less than 20 words? <laughs> I suppose. Happy birthday. So, so- and I hope how were you moved by your Tony Howe's message? That was incredible. That's the best thing I've ever seen. I will fair play. What a man. What a man. He didn't mess about. It's not like just like, oh, happy birthday, Rupert done. He's like actually like full on going into character. Yeah. Chucking in a bit of like self Brilliant. Yeah. Bringing out go- genuinely golden lines. Genuinely yeah. golden lines from a, a really memorable advert that lives on in the minds of millions from the 90s so it's incredible thank you so much yeah thank you tony um well i'm gonna want a t-shirt um so the my film of the week is the block island sound yes oh, I, I will say though right that was a film my film of the week effectively from like six weeks ago so if i was gonna have to ch- so the block island sound hands down film of the week everyone should watch it but if I was going to choose another film of this week, I would choose Enemy of the State because it's one of those, it's a 90s techno thriller that is kind of so fast paced and fun that it stands up apart yeah. from, apart from they've got all the surveillance after Will Smith and, you know, they, they can to a nanosecond sort of know exactly where he is apart from when the plot wants him to get away for the next bit. Naturally, they, naturally but that's fine and cope with that. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to watch that again because my only memory of it is I think probably that chase at the start actually with Jason. What's his face? Jason Lee. Yeah, my yeah. great escape. Quite frankly, um, my film of the week. I love Secret Window. I do. I really like that film. But I'm gonna go for Only the Brave because it did so poorly that I think it deserves a bigger audience. It needs a Needs to be resurrected on streaming services. So yeah, only the brave is my choice. Have you seen the Ninth Gate? Uh, it's on my list. Good, that's right. That's yeah. on something. Isn't it Roman? Is it Roman Polanski? Or am I imagining that? It is, no, it is Roman Polanski. Yeah. yeah, he's always good for twisty stuff. Again, that's probably best best watch it before his bloody back catalogue gets deleted as well. <laughs> I know we're gonna work. Hang on. I'm gonna have to watch The Man from Uncle again before I'll be better off. <laughs> I'm um, not going to watch that film again. No, I'm not. Um, I'll probably forget I watched it in a couple of years. All right. Um, well, it's been a pleasure. 
you you have to have your Arkansas for the next time. Oh, okay, okay. All right, so you and I'll see you in three months. <laughs> you have to get. I'm going to make this especially tough because three okay. months is ridiculous, right? So you have to get from. We'll keep it male and female. I quite like that aspect. Okay. Mila Jovovich. Yeah. To Basil Wallace. <laughs> okay. Writing this down. Basil Wallace. Okay. Easy. Okay. Easy. Done it already, mate. <laughs> You're tracking, mate. Tracking. <laughs> tracking. Brilliant. Oh, um, my God. So, happy birthday. And uh, thank so you for much. another amazing episode. And uh, I'll see you for KK37. Brilliant. See you then. All my love. <laughs>